Turn your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. I'm going to read the first nine verses to you. And the setting of this undoubtedly is Christ's final trip to Jerusalem. He's on his way to give his life for sinners like us. But along the way, he's doing a lot of teaching, a lot of it in chapter 12. Let me pick it up at that point. Chapter 13, verse 1 through verse 9, this is the Word of God. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, put on manure, Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Today we're going to be considering and talking about disasters. What is a disaster? It comes from a Greek word, astron, meaning a star, from which we get the word astronomy. Originally it it meant an unfavorable alignment of stars. So we think of astrology and those kinds of things, the worship of stars, which goes back many, many centuries. It's come to mean this. A disaster is a sudden calamitous event bringing great damage, loss, or destruction. And a great disaster like that, most recently in our nation, of course, was 9-11. One of our biggest ones. Yet before that, there were many other disasters, hurricanes, Tornadoes, earthquakes, droughts. Throughout our world, there have been floods, even in our own nation, of course. Tsunamis, that sort of, of thing. People call these acts of God. And in a sense, that's true, the providence of God. But we know that they are a result of Adam's sin. Most recently, we've had the disaster of the virus, COVID-19 which has destroyed our economy to a large extent, which has caused businesses to collapse, which has brought all kinds of destruction and misery to many, many people. Talk about disasters. And on top of that, the disaster of all the rioting that's been going on in our nation, all these large cities, just terrible, terrible things. So why do disasters happen? Why doesn't an omnipotent, benevolent God do something to stop them? How are we to handle them and relate to them? What lessons can we learn 
this passage helps us with three lessons. Number one lesson, disasters are a result of sin. Not as we soon will see what those in the text thought sin was, but what the scriptures really teach. Our text begins that there were some present at that very time. We're uncertain just who they were or how many. Undoubtedly, they were residents, Jewish residents of Jerusalem. At that very time, that is just as Jesus had been teaching many things, including chapter 12, which leads right into chapter 13. Well, at that, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It's quite probable that these people interrupted Jesus during his teaching. We can see them coming and say, Rabbi, Rabbi, excuse us for a moment, but we want to bring to your attention this terrible disaster that just happened about the Galileans. Now, in the eyes of the Jews, Galileans were a very rebellious, wicked, uneducated, crude people, the, the northern hicks up to the north part of Palestine always involved in fightings and seditions. But at least this time, these Galileans had made the journey down to Jerusalem. They had gone in to offer their animal sacrifices in the temple. And somewhere along the line, Pilate, the Roman governor, probably thinking there was some kind of a disobedience against Roman law or whatever his reason was, he sent his soldiers right into the temple where they were offering their sacrifices. And those Galileans were murdered in cold blood. And that cold blood was taken and intermingled with the blood of the animal sacrifices. Can you imagine how Jews would respond to that? The very fact that Roman soldiers were in the temple, it's bad enough, but then the murdering and the blood mingling with the sacrifices. The temple was to be a place of, sac of sanctuary and shelter. Instead, it had become a place of slaughter and danger. We wonder why they approached Christ in the first place. Quite possibly it was because he was from the Galilee area, having grown up in Nazareth. And maybe they were hoping that he might uh, act with revenge or some kind of uh, discredit given to the Galileans or maybe even some kind of negative opinion against Pilate himself. Probably they were trying to entrap him in some way, regardless of what his answer might be. In response to that particular disaster in Jerusalem on that day. Well, in responding to this information, as evidenced by his question in verse 2, Christ was well aware that behind this news was this thought. See, in verse 2, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in that way? And probably they would have nodded their head and said, yeah, that's exactly what we think. Because that was the pagan approach to, to things like this. When bad things happen, must be do, they must have done something pretty bad. That person must have done something very displeasing to Jehovah God. Their idea is expressed by uh, John in chapter 9, verse, uh, yeah, John chapter 9, verse 2, in which John records their response to the blind man. Well, who, who's responsible for this? The man himself? Or was it because of their parents? Maybe their parents did something wrong. Because of that, they were punished. Now, even today, 
How do people respond to disasters or bad things that happen? Why did he deserve that? Why did that happen to them? Whatever did I do? What terrible thing must I have done to displease the Lord that this terrible thing happened? So having asked this question, quite aware of what was behind what they had to ask and and share with him, he gives the answer. What was his answer? No. No. You are wrong. That is not why those disasters, that disaster happened to the Galileans. Now that answer must have shocked the Jews who had asked the questions, probably even the disciples. They weren't used to this kind of approach to it. But you notice what Jesus did here. He's taken the emphasis out of the focus on the Galileans and shifted it to the Jews. And he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That word repent alerts us to the aspect of sin. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. It's disobeying God's law. It's rebelling against God's commands. It's not doing what he says. It's not loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's not loving our neighbors ourselves. It's not disobeying the Ten Commandments, etc., etc., as the Scripture is full of various and sundry things we are to do. And when we don't do that, we are sinning. We are breaking God's law. So we must not make the same mistake implied by the Jews saying, well, this must be a result of specific sins, but back up a little bit and realize when we say that disasters are the result of sin, we go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and the fall of man through Adam's sin. Adam representing us, representing the whole human race. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why he says in Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That is, in the sight of a holy God, it's as if everyone is ever born has sinned except, of course, for Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin and did not inherit Adam's sin. Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul writes this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. In other words, the world in which we live, the world of hurricanes and earthquakes, the world, the terrible things that are done by Humanity, one person to another person, or a group of people to other people, such as the rioting, is due to the curse of sin upon this planet. That's what we mean when we say this is a lesson we should learn from this particular text. Now, in verse 4, Christ now makes reference to another disaster. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. The Tower of Siloam was built on the southeast corner of the walls of Jerusalem, near the famous Pool of Siloam. Probably it was a defensive outlook of some kind, a guard post where people could look out, see if the enemy was coming. 
Why did it collapse? Well, we don't know for sure. Perhaps a general structural failure. Saw a cartoon once of the Tower of Pisa standing straight like this, and two contractors down below, one contractor's talking to the other and saying, I fudged a little bit on the foundation, but no one will ever know. And this very morning, as I stayed overnight with Lloyd Swanson, he has a photograph of the Tower of Pisa. There it is, leaning. Possibly that was the reason the Tower of Siloam fell, structural failure, or an earth tremor. All we know is that one day, suddenly it collapsed and crushed 18 people. My wife had a cousin who several years ago was walking down the street in one of the cities of Illinois with her husband, and suddenly, out of nowhere, part of the building collapsed and fell upon her, and immediately she was killed. Talk about a disaster in that household, in that family, in that city. Now, at the end of verse 4, Jesus there, and in verse 5, repeats what he said earlier in verses 2 and 3. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You think that's why? Now, up until he had said his previous words, they probably were nodding their heads. Yeah, that's right. They must have done something really bad, those 18 people. How does Jesus respond again? No, you are wrong. Then he shifts back to the people who asked him these questions. He says, unless you and your generation repent, you likewise will perish. Shorter Catechism, question 19 asks the question, what is the misery of the state into which man fell? In other words, when Adam disobeyed God, what, what came upon the human race? Here's the answer. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And that, my friends, is why we have disasters result of sin. Lesson number two. You probably noticed it already. Disasters are warnings of judgment. Warnings of judgment. We need to take a closer look at the, the word repent. What does repent mean? It means a change of direction. So in conversion... Two parts to conversion, repentance and faith. If you're a child of God and some of you can remember the time when you were converted, others of us grew up in a Christian home and we're not quite sure when that happened, but somewhere along the line, you were born going in a certain direction away from God and your life changed. God changed you in your heart and life so that you now have different goals and different values. You're not completely freed from sin sinning, but now you can have victory over your sin. But it's a change direction. Several years ago, I was uh, on a committee. We were having a committee work in Atlanta, Georgia. We had met there before. This one time, I got instructions of where we were going to meet, and it gave a certain name of a place. I didn't recognize it. So I got my atlas out and looked, and over in the eastern part of Georgia was this town. And uh, so when I got to Atlanta, I got on the rapid transit system and uh, paid my fare and got on, heading east toward this place. 
And at about the second stop, I began to think, whoa, wait a minute here. This does not make sense. Why is this committee meeting way over there when we've always met in Atlanta before? I need to get off this train right now, as soon as possible, and turn around and head back to Atlanta. I was going east. I got to go west. And when I got back to Atlanta, I can't remember all how I figured it out. Eventually, I found there was an area of Atlanta with that name. But I would have never gotten there if I had gone all the way out to eastern Georgia. I had to change direction. And so in our lives, we need to be converted, repent of our sins, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ that he died for our sins in our place. In our sophisticated, self-reliant, freedom-loving, Bible-ignorant society, repentance is the last thing people are thinking of. The last thing they want to do. Who are you to tell me I need to change my lifestyle? Who are you to tell me that I need to change course? I want to do what I want to do. Unless the Lord opens up the heart, that's going to be the attitude of the sinner. Repentance is a difficult concept for people today to accept. So don't be discouraged. Probably some of you have had experiences. You talk with some relatives, talk with some neighbors, fellow workers, and it just seems like that goes right over their head. They have no interest, no thought of turning their lives around. But we need to pray for them and continue to be a witness to them and hope that Lord will open up their hearts. Lesson two, disasters are warnings of judgment. In our text, Christ is giving a very important warning that that generation of people back there in the first century were heading toward destruction, toward judgment upon their nation. But they were unaware of it. Go back up to the 12th chapter for a moment to verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower's coming. So it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. Yes, Jesus said that, by the way. <laughs> you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You're great at telling, seeing what the weather's going to be and reacting to it, but here I've been talking about judgment coming upon the nation. You're not paying any attention to it. You're rejecting me. The last verses of chapter 12, beginning of verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what's right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The last thing you want to do is go to jail. And so you are aware that you might go to jail if you don't take care of everything with the magistrate, with the government officials or whoever. Oh, you're very much aware of that. You act on that. But you ignore my warnings about what's going to happen here. For three years, Jesus did this over and over and over again. So the Galilean incident and the Tower of Siloam incident 
were warning models of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. Preludes to what would happen in 70 A.D. The text takes, takes place around 30 A.D., more or less. Another 40 years that judgment would come. And those shocking, the shocking disasters of our time should at least alert us to the fact that we're moving inevitably toward the greatest disaster of all, the final judgment. It's true that the disasters we experience now are bad enough, and we certainly wish they would never occur, right? Wouldn't it be nice? You think there's no more disasters. We leave here this morning, no more disasters in our life, in our world, in our country. Ah, but wait a minute. The problem with that is complacency. What's complacency? Self-satisfaction. No urgent concern about any possible danger or trouble. Everything's all right with the Creator. We're fine when everything is not all right. So lesson number one about disasters, the result of sin. Lesson number two, warnings of judgment. Now if we ended at verse five, it'd be a rather of a downer of a sermon today. You leave here only thinking of sin and judgment. Sin and judgment. Now I have to go off into this week. What, what's something positive here? Well, there's something positive in the parable that follows. Because the third lesson brought out by the parable is that disasters are extensions of mercy. Extensions of the mercy of God, His compassion to those in misery. Let me summarize the parable for you that I read a moment ago. A fig tree matured normally in three years. This owner had planted a particular fig tree, and he came hoping to find fruit on it. No fruit. So he gives his order to his vine dresser. He says, cut it down. No use of taking up ground. We'll plant something else. But the vine dresser responds and says, sir, might I suggest this? Give it one more year. Extend its life one more year, and I'll take good care of it. And if it brings forth fruit, well, that'll be good for you, won't it? But after another year, if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. To help us understand this, the owner represents God. The fig tree represents the Jewish nation. The owner's desire is for fruit. But the fig tree, representing the Jewish nation, indicates barrenness and fruitlessness. The vine dresser is Jesus. The phrase, let it alone, is an extension of divine mercy. And the future of the tree will either blessing through fruit or curse because of fruitlessness. Notice in this parable, it teaches us the magnanimous, generous delay of punishment due to the mercy of the Lord. How did this work out in that first century for the nation of the Jews? Well, as I indicated already, 
Disaster was coming. National Israel already had been given three years of public ministry. Think of the privilege they had. The Son of God in human flesh walking in their streets, talking and teaching to their people. And yet as John records for us, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. He was rejected. Mercy was extended to them, not for a literal 365 days, but for about four decades. And during that time, what would they have experienced? The resurrection of Christ for a few days, his ascension, the Pentecost day we talked about last week, and the influence of the Christians spreading throughout the world, churches being established, the gospel being preached. How God was so gracious to them. But at the end of that period of time, still lack of fruit, still lack of faith in Jesus Christ. And the disaster came. It actually started about 66 AD, lasted for about four years. But in the 70 is the time when the Romans really meant business. They really came in, they leveled the walls down, they destroyed the temple, they took things that were in the temple back to their, their land. And the slaughter of the people was terrible. Many believers in Jesus had received the warning and heeded it. And when they realized what was happening, they fled to the hills and escaped the punishment. But those that remained behind and said, oh, nothing's going to happen. This is no big deal. They suffered measure, immeasurably. We read Josephus, the Jewish historian, who tells us terrible, terrible things done to men and women and children. It was a disaster of disasters for the Jewish nation. History has demonstrated what happens to spiritually barren nations like Israel, Judah, and even a nation like the United States of America. After 9-11, questions were asked. How could God let this happen? Where was he? To which Ann Graham replied, and I sent this out in the newsletter a couple days ago. Well, he left. We asked him to leave. We want to do our own thing, so he left. Her father, Billy, once said, if God doesn't judge America, then the Lord will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. My wife, a few days ago, went out to our one rose bush we have. Beautiful roses blooming, and she gathered several of them, put them in a nice little bowl, and they're sitting on our dining room table. And they're very beautiful roses. But by the time I get back uh, later this afternoon, I'll probably notice they're beginning to wilt a little bit. And sometime this week, we're going to have to throw them away, as it were, cut them down. And that's what happened to Israel, God, or Judah. God cut them down. Is the Lord in process of cutting America down through the disasters that are occurring to us, the warnings that He has given? God's extended His mercy to our generation. Signs of that mercy are all around today. Churches like this. Uh, ministries of all kinds, Christian ministries. Books, tracts, DVDs, sermon audios. And Christians. People like you and me who are seeking to live as lights in the world. We're still around. People may mock us, make fun of us, not pay attention to us. 
but we're right there in effect by our lives saying to them in our witness, God is extending His mercy to you. God's delaying His eventual coming in the great final judgment. Our days are not merely for us to exploit for our own personal pleasure, but how many think that? J.B. Phillips has written, we want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe is simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Is that how God looks down at our world, at our nation? You, me, or is he reaching down to us with his mercy, his compassion, pleading for sinners to come to him, trust in him? Each new day, even in dark moments, is a gift of divine mercy, giving opportunities for people to seek the Lord and find him while he is near. These are times for pondering about the meaning of disasters. We looked at three of them today. The result of sin, warnings of judgment, extensions of of God's mercy. The question is not, why are there so many disasters all through human history, one after another after another? The real question should be, why aren't there more of them? What do sinful, rebellious sinners deserve from the holy, righteous God? Reflecting upon the owner's Desire come seeking fruit on the fig tree and not finding anything, Matthew Henry has written. It is sad to think how many enjoy the privileges of the gospel, and you do nothing at all the honor to the honor of God. The patience of God is stretched out to long suffering with many that enjoy the gospel and do not bring forth the fruit of it. Let's be honest. If disasters do nothing else, they certainly get our attention. We can't ignore them. There they are. They come very suddenly, very quickly, and we find ourselves dealing with either huge national disasters or personal disasters. But there are times for us to focus on that. Why is God doing this? What's he trying to teach me? Am I responding to his continual reaching out to me so that I might trust and flee to Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. So I ask you to think about that, not only for yourselves, but for others as well. I close with this anonymous poem. Someone asked me after the service, what's the name of that? I said, I don't know. All I have are the words. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today, repent. Harden not your heart.
disasters are serious things, but so is the gospel. And so is the word of God. Let us heed to it. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, there's no doubt that we are humbled and frightened and concerned when disasters strike. Whether it's the virus, 9-11, something that's happened in our family. Lord, these give us moments to ponder and we pray we may not question you and rebel against you, but might submit to the fact that in your good providence, you are in control of all these things that happen. And you have a purpose for them, for us as individuals and for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world and for the world at large. Lord, with the Apostle John, we would pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we know not when that day and hour might be. And so might we leave here today with encouragement and hope that you guide our steps, direct our paths, and that ultimately you will not bring us into a condition of perishing, but bring us through Jesus Christ to eternal life. We pray these things in his name. Amen.